You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 279 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As we get started with this show, we just wanted to point out that with regard to these first several episodes in the Vicksburg story arc, because we're covering the background to the campaign, Well, as you may have realized, we've actually already talked about many of these events either in the regular episodes of the podcast or in members' episodes. Right. For example, we used some members' episodes to talk about the fall of New Orleans, the Battle of the Rams at Memphis, and the short but dramatic career of the CSS Arkansas. And then with this show that you're listening to, We'll talk a bit about Ayuka and Corinth once again, but we've actually already covered those battles in much more detail in some regular cast. So all of that's to say that if you'd like to, you can always go back and listen to those shows once again. And if you're a part of the Strawfoot Brigade, then of course you can check out those members' episodes anytime. All right, so we just wanted to remind y'all about that. But now, as we get back to the business at hand and continue setting the stage for the Vicksburg campaign, we're going to turn our attention to Ulysses S. Grant. When Henry Halleck was called to Washington in the summer of 1862 to take the job of General-in-Chief of the Union's armies, he divided his department, placing Major General Ulysses S. Grant in command of the District of West Tennessee on the east side of the Mississippi River and leaving Samuel Curtis in charge of the Department of Missouri on the west side of the Great River. Grant should be a familiar figure to y'all by now, since by this point we've talked about him many times before on the podcast. But he was a West Point graduate and Mexican War veteran who had resigned from the Army in 1854 because he disliked being separated from his family. He hadn't prospered in civilian life, to put it mildly, and was working at his father's leather goods store in Galena, Illinois, when the Civil War broke out. The Union needed men with military experience, and Grant soon found himself back in a blue uniform. He demonstrated a strong, aggressive streak that resulted in the capture of Forts Henry and Donelson, the first great federal military triumph of the war. Grant was surprised and nearly defeated at Shiloh, which temporarily left him under a cloud, at least with Halleck. 
but nevertheless Grant's accomplishments brought him to the attention of Abraham Lincoln. With Halleck's departure, Grant's new command, the District of West Tennessee, encompassed the southern tip of Illinois, all of Kentucky and Tennessee between the Mississippi and Tennessee rivers, and a swath of northern Mississippi. It included over 50,000 troops, most of whom were stationed between Memphis and Corinth along the Tennessee-Mississippi line. Grant's primary mission was to keep the Confederates away from the network of railroads that linked Memphis, Corinth, and other key points in western Kentucky and Tennessee. This was a defensive assignment, and Grant hated it, since by nature he was one of the most offensive-minded commanders on either side in the Civil War. Grant's Confederate counterpart was the equally offensive-minded Earl Van Dorn, who commanded the Department of Mississippi and East Louisiana from his headquarters in Vicksburg. In September 1862, rebel generals Kirby Smith and Braxton Bragg launched a major counteroffensive up into Kentucky. Bragg asked Van Dorn to keep Grant busy so that Grant wouldn't be able to send reinforcements to the federal forces that would be opposing the Confederate invasion of Kentucky. Van Dorn was only too happy to oblige. He hoped not merely to distract Grant, but also to recover the vital rail junction at Corinth and drive the Yankees out of northern Mississippi altogether. And so Van Dorn led about 6,000 men north from Vicksburg to rendezvous with Sterling Price's 17,000 rebel troops in the northeast corner of the state. Sensing an opportunity and believing that in this instance a good defense was a strong offense, Grant struck before the Confederates could join forces. He attempted to trap Price with a two-pronged attack. On September 19, 1862, William Rosecrans and 9,000 federal troops hit Price at Iuka, 25 miles east of Corinth. Grant accompanied Edward Ord, who with 8,000 additional Union soldiers, was poised to strike Price's rear while he was engaged with Rosecrans. But because of an atmospheric phenomenon called an acoustic shadow, Grant and Ord failed to hear the roar of battle only a few miles away, and so they didn't attack Price. The Confederates thus were able to slip away after a few hours of hard fighting, and Price eventually linked up with Van Dorn near Tupelo. Losses at Iuka were about 1,560 men killed, wounded, or missing on the Confederate side, and 825 casualties on the Federal side. Grant was certain that Van Dorn and Price, now that they had joined forces, would make an attack somewhere in an attempt to turn the tables on the Federals in northern Mississippi and southwestern Tennessee, and Van Dorn didn't disappoint. The rebel generals moved north from Tupelo toward the rail junction at Corinth with 22,000 men. Grant rushed Rosecrans back from Iuka and poured in reinforcements until the Union garrison at Corinth totaled 23,000 men. 
Rosecrans strengthened and improved upon the extensive earthwork fortifications thrown up by the rebels earlier in the year when they had held the place. Unaware of these preparations, Van Dorn swung around to the northwest side of town, hoping that an attack from that direction would take the Federals by surprise. On October 3rd, the Confederates assaulted the outer line of earthworks. After hours of fierce fighting, they drove the Federal defenders back to the inner line of fortifications, which the rebels didn't know existed. The next day, the Confederates resumed their attack, but were eventually repulsed with terrible losses. Van Dorn's army lost more than 4,800 men, killed, wounded, or missing, a casualty rate of over 20%. Rosecrans' force fought from behind earthworks much of the time, but still suffered over 2,300 casualties. The mangled Confederate army staggered away toward the Hatchie River, its morale shattered, and many of its finest men left behind in front of the fatal fortifications. Coming so soon after the failure at Baton Rouge and the retreat from Iuka, the dreadful affair at Corinth was the last hurrah for the Confederate forces holding the Vicksburg-Port Hudson Corridor. Never again would they muster the strength to take the offensive. Van Dorn's defeat in northern Mississippi was overshadowed by the even greater Confederate failure in Kentucky, where Bragg and Kirby Smith failed to coordinate their efforts. Following a confused and costly battle at Perryville on October 8th, Bragg abandoned Kentucky and withdrew to south-central Tennessee. The rebels regrouped at Murfreesboro, while Union forces returned to Nashville. After six weeks of immense effort on the part of the Confederates, the strategic situation in the West was essentially unchanged. The only high-ranking officers on either side who emerged from these operations with their reputations enhanced, or at least intact, were Rosecrans and Grant. The powers that be in Washington had been decidedly unimpressed with the unexceptional performance of Don Carlos Buell, the Union general who had turned back the Confederate invasion of Kentucky, And so in late October 1862, Halleck removed Buell and placed Rosecrans in charge of the Department of the Cumberland. Halleck rewarded Grant by transforming the District of West Tennessee into the Department of the Tennessee. Grant's new command extended as far south as he could push his army and potentially included all of the Mississippi Valley north of the Union Enclave around New Orleans which was part of the Department of the Gulf. Grant was authorized to draw upon troops and supplies from Curtis's command across the Mississippi as needed. All of this meant that after several months of holding his ground and responding to Confederate moves, Grant was free to seize the initiative and resume offensive operations. Once again in his element, he sent a proposal to Halleck in Washington. Grant made clear he wanted to stop protecting railroads and supply depots and begin to move south toward an objective worthy of some effort, Vicksburg. 
What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I'd like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. Grant's plan was simplicity itself. His Army of the Tennessee would advance south along the line of the Mississippi Central Railroad toward the state capital of Jackson, 40 miles east of Vicksburg. The Southern Railroad of Mississippi, the vital east-west rail line that linked Vicksburg with the rest of the Confederacy, also passed through Jackson. Grant believed that the state capital's capture would compel the rebels to evacuate Vicksburg just as federal inland advances earlier in the year had outflanked and forced the evacuation of other Confederate posts over along the Mississippi River, like Columbus, Kentucky, and Fort Pillow, north of Memphis. There were one or two worrisome aspects to Grant's plan, though. For instance, an overland route required the Army of the Tennessee to cross several substantial rivers that flowed west to the Mississippi, notably the Tallahatchie and Yalabusha. Each was a natural obstacle and a potential moat behind which Confederate forces could dig in. Perhaps of even greater concern was the certainty that the rebels would destroy the Mississippi Central Railroad as they fell back southward, forcing Grant's army to rebuild the track every step of the way. If the Confederates were thorough and tenacious, The Federal advance toward Jackson would be slow and costly. It should be noted that by advancing deep into enemy territory on a narrow front, that is down a single railroad, with two vulnerable flanks, Grant would depart dramatically from his previous experience in the war, when he had quickly transported his troops by water at Belmont, Forts Henry and Donelson, and Pittsburgh Landing. 
If Grant underestimated the hazards of undertaking a major, sustained offensive, deepened enemy territory, while dependent entirely on a single railroad for logistical support, he can be forgiven for this miscalculation, since he had no precedent to rely upon. After all, up to this point in the war, no one had tried something like this. Grant also apparently thought that the Confederates were so demoralized by their, by their recent setbacks that his forces could push down the Mississippi Central without much resistance. And so, hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst, Grant directed that working parties be established to repair the tracks and to rebuild bridges and culverts. He also prepared to detach troops to guard every water tank, wood yard, and supply depot. Meanwhile, the Confederates were making changes of their own. Van Dorn's costly blunders at Pea Ridge and Corinth, coupled with political missteps and a scandalous personal life, finally proved too much even for his old friend, Jefferson Davis. In October, the Confederate president removed Van Dorn from departmental command and replaced him with 48-year-old John C. Pemberton, whose most recent assignment had been command of the Department of South Carolina and Georgia. Newly promoted to lieutenant general, Pemberton hurried west and assumed command of the Department of Mississippi and East Louisiana. In April 1861, Old General-in-Chief Winfield Scott had summoned Captain John C. Pemberton to his office. Pemberton had just submitted his resignation, and Scott wanted to talk him out of it. Scott held high hopes Pemberton would remain loyal to the Union because he was a native Pennsylvanian. In fact, Captain Pemberton had recently learned that his two younger brothers had joined the Philadelphia City Troop of Cavalry. His mother wondered why John didn't return home and do the same. But Pemberton faced strong opposing polls. He had received a letter from his Virginia-born wife in which she wrote, My darling husband, why are you not with us? Why do you stay? Jeff Davis has a post ready for you. And so Pemberton weighed the wishes of his family and Winfield Scott against his wife's pleas and his own sense of duty. In the end, he went south. That Pemberton had a strong sense of duty would have probably surprised his former instructors at West Point. While there, the high-spirited young man skated on the edge of academic dismissal, showing a greater ability to accumulate demerits than to comprehend descriptive geometry. One too many drinking bouts almost led to his expulsion, but he managed to graduate 27th out of a class of 50. He received a commission in the artillery. During the war against Mexico, the young officer exhibited a surpassing respect for adhering to orders. When written orders specified that none of the junior officers should ride horses while accompanying the troops on the march, the officers who were not used to walking became footsore. Such was their discomfort that almost everyone received verbal permission to remount. One officer who did so recalled that, quote, 
Pemberton alone said no, he would walk, as the written order was still extant not to ride. End quote. Ulysses S. Grant, who provided that recollection of Pemberton to a newspaper long after the war, then and thereafter concluded that John Pemberton was a somewhat inflexible man. When Pemberton decided to join the Confederacy, Joseph E. Johnston quickly selected him to serve on his staff in Virginia. As was true with so many West Point graduates from both the North and the South, Pemberton received rapid promotion without having distinguished himself in any particular way. And so it was Brigadier General Pemberton who was sent to Charleston, South Carolina in November 1861, where he served as a district commander under Department Commander Robert E. Lee. Having yet to encounter the enemy, Pemberton nonetheless received a promotion to Major General in February 1862. And when Lee returned to Richmond in March, Pemberton became the commander of the Department of South Carolina and Georgia. However, it wasn't long before South Carolina's governor, Francis Pickens, complained to Richmond that Pemberton seemed, quote, confused and uncertain about everything, end quote. Now, in part, this complaint was sheer prejudice. South Carolina's powerful politicians detested the idea that a Yankee was in charge of their state's defense. What was important about the ensuing squabble was that Jefferson Davis found himself compelled to defend Pemberton's appointment against all critics. The Confederate president responded to Governor Pickens by assuring him that he had such confidence in Pemberton as to, quote, be satisfied to have him in any position requiring the presence of an able general. Eleven days later, Davis elaborated in another letter to Pickens. That was because during a long personal interview, Pemberton had provided Davis with, quote, unquote, a full exposition on the subject of coastal defense. Jefferson Davis admired a man who had mastery of detail, seeing in such an officer a kindred spirit. And so the Confederate president explained to Pickens that the defense of Charleston required an officer experienced in infantry and artillery service and acquainted with engineering. In Davis's view, Pemberton's education and service had given him the, quote, requisite knowledge. But, as had been the case in Virginia, throughout his tenure in Charleston, Pemberton did nothing to distinguish himself. In fact, in June 1862, during the Battle of Secessionville, the one significant clash that took place during his time in command, Pemberton preferred to remain in the rear, supervising the action indirectly. However, after Jefferson Davis asserted that something was so, he was extremely unlikely to reverse himself, and so it was with Pemberton. Then and thereafter, for the rest of his life, Davis found no important fault with John Pemberton. Still, the grumbling and complaints emanating from South Carolina were becoming harder to ignore. Governor Pickens wanted P.G.T. Beauregard, the hero of Fort Sumter, to defend Charleston. Beauregard had been relieved by Davis after he had left the Western Army, supposedly for health reasons but without permission, after he lost Corinth to the Yankees. 
There was bad blood between Davis and Beauregard going back to the Battle of First Manassas, and Davis would have preferred to leave the general on the shelf, but appointing Beauregard to command Charleston's defenses was better than having to give him another army in the field. So in August 1862, Davis appointed him to replace Pemberton. Pemberton kicked around Richmond for a while, but then when Davis decided it was time to replace Van Dorn out at Vicksburg, he sent Pemberton. Davis assured Mississippi's governor that Pemberton was, quote, an officer of great merit, end quote. However, to command effectively in Mississippi, Pemberton required seniority. And so Davis nominated, and the Confederate Senate confirmed, Pemberton for the rank of lieutenant general. John Pemberton had indeed enjoyed a meteoric rise. During the war's early years, other officers experienced similar ascents, but these usually came about after some experience leading troops in combat in the field. However, thus far during the Civil War, Pemberton had neither directly commanded men in battle, nor had he participated in a campaign. But now, nevertheless, he held one of the most important departmental commands in the Confederacy, and the mandate to defend all of the state of Mississippi, and also Louisiana, east of the Mississippi River. As the new commander of the Department of Mississippi in East Louisiana, Pemberton discovered that he was blessed with several able subordinates. Foremost among them was Brigadier General Martin Smith, a West Point graduate and Mexican War veteran. Smith, a military engineer, had been sent to Vicksburg the previous May to take charge of constructing defensive works there. At first, throughout the summer of 1862, Smith focused on strengthening the gun batteries along the river, but then he turned his attention to building landward defenses. He reasoned that because the Union Navy had failed to take Vicksburg, then the next effort would be made by the enemy army. Smith assigned Major Samuel Lockett, another capable military engineer, the task of constructing a semicircular line of earthworks around Vicksburg. Lockett certainly had his job cut out for him. The terrain was unbelievably rugged, with hillsides covered by dense forests and ravines choked with cane breaks. Lockett labored for weeks to simply gain some understanding of how best to construct a line of defensive works around Vicksburg's landward approaches. The base of the escarpment on the east bank of the Mississippi is limestone, but the bluffs above are composed of a fine yellowish soil called luss that erodes in such a way as to produce a maze of steep, narrow ridges and deep, twisting gullies. The resulting terrain has no apparent pattern, but is simply a jumble of high and low ground. Lockett said that, quote, no greater topographical puzzle was ever presented to an engineer. Lockett eventually plotted an irregular line of earthworks that wrung every possible tactical advantage out of the dizzying landscape. Construction commenced in September 1862 and was well underway when Pemberton arrived on the scene. 
Picks and shovels were in short supply, but because less is soft, the work progressed steadily. Hired or impressed slaves provided most of the manpower. When completed, the semicircular line was about eight miles in length and anchored on the Mississippi River, both above and below Vicksburg. It was basically a trench and parapet fronted by a ditch for most of its length. Dozens of prepared artillery positions were located along the line, and nine large earthen forts guarded the gaps where the Southern Railroad of Mississippi and a half dozen roads passed through the works. Thousands of trees were cut down to clear a field of fire for the defenders and create a vast tangled abatis to slow attackers and break up their formations. Lockett's line was an impressive example of military engineering, but many of the ridges were too narrow to permit a defense in depth. This meant that if the Confederates were driven out of their works, there was no fallback or secondary position. Therefore, the trenches and forts were both the first and last line of defense. In the months to come, Smith and Lockett laid out additional positions to protect Vicksburg's extended flanks. To prevent Union gunboats from reaching Yazoo City, fortifications were constructed at Haines Bluff, Snyder's Bluff, and Drumgold's Bluff along the Yazoo River, 12 to 15 miles north of Vicksburg. Earthworks were also thrown up at Warrenton and Grand Gulf along the Mississippi River below the town. And so, as autumn 1862 faded into winter, the Confederates prepared Vicksburg and its outposts for whatever the Federals might have in mind. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Pemberton, a biography by Michael B. Ballard. This is a well-written book about a controversial figure. There's really not much out there regarding Pemberton as far as book-length studies, so this biography by Ballard provides a much-appreciated look at the man who played a pivotal role in one of the Civil War's most important campaigns. Don't forget, you can find a list of all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then, as of this past Friday, with regard to all of the membership episodes and stuff, we're officially, completely, moved over to Patreon. We want to give a shout-out and a big thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade who have signed on to support the podcast over at patreon.com backslash civilwarpodcast. And that would be Kyron, Brecken, Patrick, and John. And Tom, Brian, Brad, Connie, and Ben W. And Ben N., Michael, Richard, and Dennis. We also want to thank Randall C. for his donation to the podcast this past week. And then just an FYI, but yesterday Tracy and I re-recorded the last episode which I did by myself last weekend since she was a bit under the weather. However, I really didn't think you guys would appreciate having to listen to just me drone on for 50 minutes, so we took some time yesterday to record it together. So you can go back and check that out if you want to. 
Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.